Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Um, my name's Lisa Jackson Pulver. We're here actually not to listen to me, we're here to listen to a, a very, very honoured guest. Um, and she is um, a, a woman who's absolutely extraordinary. When we first had a look at her bio, it went for about 14 pages. And <laughs> I was told that might, we may not have uh, enough time. Uh, so I'll just give a, a short pricey if that's okay. Tina is a leading global voice on issues of gender and inequality, sexual harassment and diversity at work, and co-founder of Time's Up Legal Defence Fund. The fund connects survivors of workplace sexual harassment with legal and public relations assistance. She was an assistant to US President Barack Obama, chief of staff to other extraordinary women's advocates, the First Lady Michelle Obama, and executive director for the Council on Women and Girls. So I know we're in for the most extraordinary time today. You'll then be hearing from Professor Anne-Marie Chagos, who, as you know, is the Dean of Faculties in Arts and Science. She's internationally known as a scholar in feminist studies, lesbian and gay studies, and queer theory. She's created a number of monographs, journal articles, and sometimes you just have to ask, when do people sleep? Clearly, uh, you are very, very good at what you do, and I love that. Um, so we'll be doing a, a little bit of a fireside chat after we've listened to our special guest. And as you can see, we have a fire and a side. And I was told it was going to be sort of framed like a, you know, family time. And here you all are <laughs> as our family for our quiet fireside chat. So we're pretty excited all about that. So can you please join me in welcoming our very, very special guest, Tina Chen. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction and for having me here at the University of Sydney. Um, I had no idea it was a launch of Women at Sydney, so I am doubly honored you know, to be, to be part of that launch. Um, and um, happy International Women's Day, right? <laughs> I'm really, really thrilled to be able to spend International Women's Day with all of you here. Um, when I woke up yesterday morning, which was actually Wednesday morning by my time, in Chicago, it was 10 degrees, um, which Fahrenheit, which someone can do the Celsius translation for folks who don't understand how really cold that is. <laughs> um, and so it's really lovely to be back into summer, you know, here um, in Sydney, having, you know, traveled around the world. But I'm really, really pleased to be with you all. Um, I've got a few things. Um, I think this is probably what, um, as uh, you heard from you know, uh, uh, Lisa, is what you know me for is my time here at the White House um, with President Obama and Mrs. Obama. It is not something I had expected to have happen in my career. Um, it was a very unexpected, as you'll hear when I tell a little bit of my story, but obviously just sort of a great honor um, to, to be part of them. I am the daughter of Chinese immigrants to the United States. Um, my parents actually were refugees 
from China, from the revolution that happened in 1949. They arrived in the United States. It was, took two acts of Congress to put them on a path to citizenship. Um, but they did. And it's obviously it was a very different time where they were welcomed. Um, we, my dad settled in the middle of the country in some place called Cleveland, Ohio, not in San Francisco, not in New York, where there were you know, concentrations of Chinese. He had heard about some of the discrimination on those coasts from his friends and family, decided to go somewhere where there were no Chinese Americans. <laughs> like none. There are five families maybe, and we sort of knew them all. <laughs> so that was, that was my original upbringing. Um, from there, I went to college at Harvard, married somebody from Chicago, which is how I got to Illinois. And while my first job, which was for Illinois state government right after college, I was in the hotbed of American feminism, Springfield, Illinois, <laughs> which is the capital of Illinois, a place most of you have never heard of. But at that time, in 1978, it was truly the hotbed of American feminism. Because in 1978, the US was going through the process of trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment enshrined into the US Constitution. So unlike some other constitutions around the world, we do not have in our constitution sex discrimination barred as a matter of constitutional law. It's been read into it by the Supreme Court, but the Equal Rights Amendment would have enshrined equality under the law for women um, as a matter of US constitutional law. We needed three more states in 1978 to make it part of the U.S. Constitution. Illinois was the only northern industrial state. They were a little bit still living with vestiges of the U.S. Civil War. It was the only northern industrial state that had never ratified the ERA, and so it was the truly hotbed focal point to try to get it passed. And so we did all sorts of things like hold marches and sit-ins. It was a very heavy time. I'm all of 22 years old trying to do – we had – nuns going on hunger fasts and people chaining themselves to the doors of the, the legislature. Um, but it really did spark in me this lifelong interest and dedication to fighting gender discrimination, which carried with me really for the rest of my life. And it's, I'm so grateful for that time. Little coda to that story is this last year, so literally 40 years later, the Illinois General Assembly finally ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. <laughs> 40 years too late. Um, it's still not in the U.S. Constitution, so we're still, we're still working on that. Um, I also got involved then um, when I moved to Chicago from Springfield in women's politics um, and democratic politics, because in Chicago, Illinois, there is only one thing called democratic politics. <laughs> That's all there is. And this, we founded a group called Cook County Democratic Women back before. There were there, all these women, as you see now, coming into office. We were a group that tried to get women to get to get elected to office back then. This is our then mayor, um, Harold Washington, who was the first African American of Chicago. Um, I was the chair at all of 26 years old as the chair of CCDW. He was announcing his run for reelection in 1987. And then I went on to become a lawyer. So I was a litigator at Skadden Arps, um, the big, large international law firm for 23 years, um, doing corporate law, arguing in courts, trying cases, um, and loved doing that. I mean, actually, it was a career that I loved, but always did women's issues and continued to do democratic politics on the side. Raised two kids as a single mom. Uh, my son, Patrick, 30, who's now a U.S. Marine officer, and my daughter, Emma, 22, who is five weeks away from graduating from college. She's very excited. <laughs> and along the way there, you know, doing politics. So the thing about Chicago is, although it's a really big city, like a lot of towns, you know, if you're doing progressive democratic politics, it's really small. It's really small. We all knew each other. And along the way, long enough ago, that 
neither of the three of us remember how we met. I met a guy, funny sounding last name, big ears, right? Gets elected president. <laughs> to his shock and surprise and her shock and surprise, they, he gets elected president. Um, uh, and he asked me to go along with him uh, to serve in the White House, which I did as my great honor for all eight years. First for two years running the Office of Public Engagement, which was the outreach office for the president. And then um, for the last six years as Mrs. Obama's chief of staff. And for all eight years as the executive director of the White House Council of Women and Girls. And this is that day, which is literally 10 years ago tomorrow. So tomorrow's March 9th. It was 10 years ago tomorrow, March 9th of 2009, when President Obama, that's what was happening on this day. He was signing the executive order that created the White House Council of Women and Girls. Valerie Jarrett, um, who I'm standing next to, served as the chair for all eight years. I served as the executive director. All of women and girls policy throughout the Obama administration and through all the agencies flowed through the Council of Women and Girls and really was his directive. Uh, he was really focused on these issues. I think he got a lot of it from his mother, um, who was so passionate about women's development issues. So this is our very first bill. So the very first bill we signed five, eight, five days after he took office in January of 2009 was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. That's Lily standing behind him in the blonde hair um, to you know, try to guarantee, you know, take one more step to guarantee pay for women in the United States. And we did, you know, things, you know, one of the things that we did through the Council of Women and Girls was to actually have instead of a, an office or you have a ministry of women here, which is fantastic. We couldn't quite get to a cabinet post. But one of the things we did instead of having a cabinet post, the president thought it was important for every part of the federal government sitting around the table to take ownership for women and girls policy. So that was the purpose of the council. The council included every cabinet agency, every White House office, and he told them all that it is your responsibility to make sure whatever you do, whether you're the Department of Transportation or the Department of Health and Human Services, that you're paying attention to the needs of women and girls. So we did things like ensure that women could rise to the highest ranks of our military, which previously um, combat duty um, rank had been uh, prohibited, you know, from having women serve. By the time we ended our administration, women can now serve in all ranks of our military. This is a, a class of President Obama standing next to Secretary Ray Mabus, who is our Secretary of the Navy, who opened the ranks of, these are all submarine officers, the first class of women submarine officers in the U.S. Navy that we welcomed. Um, to this moment, so violence against women was always something tremendously important and was a thread through much of our work um, all eight years. And, you know, I am so moved whenever I am in Australia to hear the honor that you all give every moment to your indigenous peoples. Um, we are not that good. In fact, we are far, far from that. You know, one of, I think, the great stains for those of us in the United States is how we continue to treat our Native American peoples. Um, and it was something that the president felt quite strongly about um, remedying in a whole series of actions he did. One of the first that he did was to sign something called the um, Tribal uh, Justice Act, um, Tribal Law and Order Act, actually specifically, to try to make sure that victims of violence on Native reservations got justice. Because previously, a lot of women who were, you know, suffered rape or sexual, sexual violence on, by a non-Native person on native land, nothing would happen because the native authorities had no authority over a non-native perpetrator and the non-native sheriff in town 
would say, happened on Native land, not my responsibility. That changed with this act that President Obama signed. But the reason I put it up because when people ask me, what are the moments that you remember about being in the White House? It's this moment. So the woman that he is hugging is a woman named Lisa Layette. Lisa had been a victim where she was raped in her home in front of her children on Native soil. Um, and it was never prosecuted. It was one of those things. She became an advocate. She became one of the real people who pushed for the passage of this act. Um, we were standing, as we do, when we do these, we did these bill signing, she was coming up to introduce the president and tell her story so that we wanted to make whatever bill we were signing real to people. Um, and he's standing with me back in the green room watching this. And Lisa, understandably, could not get through her story. It was very difficult. And all of a sudden, he's gone. I'm standing here and the president's gone because he starts walking out. And he went out and he just stood next to her. And with his hand on his shoulder, as she finished her story, and this is at the end before he began his remarks, and Lisa finished hers. And it was just one of those moments that stayed with me around the work that we tried to do. We also tried to address campus sexual assaults. As I came to the campus here, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about that. Um, while we were in the office, you know, working on uh, violence against women, we changed our gender discrimination law that we have that protects students in every federally funded school, whether it's um, you know, elementary all the way through graduate schools from gender discrimination. And we send out, set, set out rules that made it clear to schools and universities that that bar against gender discrimination included making sure you had programs that protected students from sexual violence on campus. Because the research in the United States shows that one in five young women on campus will be the victim of sexual assault before she graduates in four years. One in five. And that's, that statistic continues to this day. So we had a series of you know, policies and programs that we put into place. Sadly, actually about to be overturned by our successors, but it's a different story and a different speech. Um, and, um, but the, the thing I'm most proud of that continues to today is what's up here. I'm going to show you a little video about it, too. One of the things we wanted to do was not just have policies from the top, but actually engage students. And the students came forward, actually. Um, I will say that a lot of our efforts were spurred by students who had the courage to come to us and say, the policies you issued from Washington aren't working. You have to do more with the schools. And one of the things we also did was to help start a student movement, It's On Us, which continues to this day on over 500 campuses in the United States, led by students, men and women, who are standing up to say, you know, it's on us to create a world where victims are protected, perpetrators are held accountable, and sexual assault really is not accepted. And those students have propelled that now um, for the last six years um, and have really, as I've told many of the young student leaders, given me the best hope as someone who's worked on sexual violence issues for 40 years, the hope that we will actually change rape culture because they're doing it, they're doing it on campus. And if you'll bear with me for a moment, I wanna show you a video that talks about this that we, we put, up, put together. I'm Barack Obama, and it's on us. It's on us is a cultural movement to fundamentally shift the way we think about sexual assault. One in five women and one in 16 men in the US today is sexually assaulted while in college. And for transgender students, the rates are even higher. Only 13% report the crime, 40% fear reprisal from their attacker, and the problem is getting worse. So we needed to reframe the conversation. Instead of focusing on those who commit sexual assault, we are focusing on the vast majority of students, 
the men and women who can do something about it, the allies in this movement. Let's put the responsibility on all of us to fight campus sexual assault, support survivors, and change the numbers forever. Launched by President Obama at the White House, It's On Us is a rallying cry inspiring everyone to step up and realize the solution begins with you through bystander intervention, consent education, and survivor support. It started with a celebrity spot to gain attention. It's on us to stop sexual assault. Followed by content defining consent. If you don't get it, you don't get it. Which led to a pledge that became a viral badge, which became a movement. And by creating tools and handing over the campaign, the movement grew. Other organizations and celebrities have started creating their own content using the original It's On Us vision and design. Over 430 colleges have created their own spots. Media platforms are creating their own content. Over 1,800 events have been held on over 500 college campuses in 49 states nationwide. The success of the movement is due to these hundreds of thousands of students who have answered the call to action and incorporated It's On Us programming into campus life, engaging and embracing diversity across student government, athletics, Greek life, and campus administrators. And recently, Vice President Joe Biden introduced It's On Us and Lady Gaga's performance at the Academy Awards. As you can tell, this was actually from 2015. <laughs> but it continues. It continues to this day. And so I'd urge you, you can go to itsonus.org to find out more about that. Um, I will say we wanted to showcase women through our administration. This is one of my favorite events we did, which is overnight for Girl Scouts. We couldn't build a fire, so that's actually why it's lamps in the middle there. The Secret Service wouldn't let us do that. We had icons come visit us in the White House, like Billie Jean King. And because I'm a fangirl, we had Hidden Figures, you know, come in. So this is the cast of Hidden Figures with us. Um, we traveled to Morocco um, together with uh, Meryl Streep and Frida Pinto, um, who you can see here. And this day, let me pause for a moment. I want to talk about this day very quickly. Um, I talk about this. This is not necessarily specific to women, but it's about fairness and equality for everybody. Um, this is the day that marriage equality was ruled uh, legal in the United States by the United States Supreme Court. Um, it also happened to be the day that we were scheduled to fly to Charleston, South Carolina, where President Obama was, was scheduled to give the eulogy for the Charleston massacre. Some of you may know that we had a horrible mass shooting inside a church in Charleston, South Carolina, where nine people lost their lives. And we all too often went to these types of memorial services to comfort the, the families. Um, that's President Obama over my colleague's shoulder on, on camera um, in the Rose Garden giving his statement about marriage equality. I went out ahead to greet the great dignitaries who were coming onto Air Force One. So we were actually standing on Air Force One watching the president. And in one of those moments I never thought would happen in my life, I'm watching the president make history by talking about marriage equality, and the person whose arm is around me is a, is a gentleman named Congressman John Lewis. Congressman John Lewis is one of the icons of the original civil rights movement. We just had a commemoration of Bloody Sunday in the United States, which is the day when people were beaten and bloodied when African Americans tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Alabama. John Lewis was one of the leaders of that, and that's, that's a picture I never thought I would do. That is also the day, if you've ever seen this particular eulogy uh, by President Obama, it's where he sang Amazing Grace. So we went down to do that, but then we flew home. And this day is one of those days of the contrast that we saw when we were in the White House. We flew home to see this. 
Now, here's the story behind this, which is important for young people. This is the White House lit up in the rainbow colors of the LGBT rights flag, which we did in secret. Um, and as the sun went down and the colors came up, there was a spontaneous party that broke out. I witnessed many marriage proposals that happened in front of the White House that day. But it all came because there were two of our youngest staff people in the White House decided to come up with the idea. Now, I was, for my law degree and everything else, I was the keeper of what do we decorate the White House? A lot of training <laughs> in this, but as chief of staff and the first lady, it was my job to decide, are we going to light the house pink or this? People may, ask, may request all the time. We had long ago decided we would do none of them because if we said yes to everybody's request to light the White House, it would never be white. And so that was the rule. We're never lighting the White House different colors. So it was with some temerity that these two young staffers came up with this idea. And we did decide if we were so fortunate to win marriage equality, it would be a unique and they brought it forward. And indeed, it became one of the most iconic pictures, not just of that year, but probably of our entire presidency. And it really was two young people about the same age as most of you in this room who came up with that idea and made that particular moment happen. So if you're ever in doubt about an idea that you have, no matter what your age is, speak up, speak up. Uh, we also had a White House Summit on Working Families. That's what's fed into my current work, which is now, um, as was mentioned, you know, I'm doing a workplace culture practice back in law, helping companies be better around workplace culture. I swear I launched that practice three weeks before the first Harvey Weinstein story. Sometimes in your life. And then I've been working with women in Hollywood to create the Times of Legal Defense Fund in the wake of those allegations. And what it is, is it is a fund that's raised over $22 million to support victims of sexual harassment, both low-income women who can't find a lawyer to help pursue their sexual harassment case, and a lot of women who have spoken out but then found themselves subject to defamation actions by the rich and powerful men who they were accusing publicly. Um, I'm proud to say that we've had you know, over 4,800 people come forward for help in the last year, 800 lawyers to help us, Two-thirds of those coming forward are low-income women. You know, one-third are people of color. And then we finally culminated our work with the United State of Women um, Summit. That organization continues to, unitedstateofwomen.org, that really brings you all of the issues that we are working on in the United States. But finally, I want to end on a whole series of things around International Women's Day and young women, because that's what I think of. When I think about International Women's Day, I think about the promise of young women and girls that we have. This was uh, a picture taken with Mrs. Obama um, at the second International Women's Day that we held in 2010. Um, at that particular event, not only do you see sort of the light in that young girl's eyes as she looks at Mrs. Obama, Mrs. Obama had been introduced that day by a young girl we flew in from Burkina Faso, who was all of 11 years old, who really, you know, was not allowed to go to school. You know, her grandfather really wanted her to just watch the goats until her grandmother said, no, no, no you're going to go to school. But what was most remarkable was I saw that young girl together with other girls like the one you see pictured here, talking in the reception later with each other, just girls from across the world from each other, just saying things like, what's your favorite color? And I like the dress you have. And what's your favorite subject in school? Which is that kind of relationships we want to build for young women and girls around the world. And then there's this young woman. So that, remember that summit I showed you, President Obama spoke at 5,000 women present out there. He was introduced by this young woman, who at the time was all of 12 years old herself, Marley Diaz. Marley had decided there weren't any brooks with girls you know, who looked like her in them. And she decided she was going to come up and find them. And she's found over 10,000 books 
and she's a She's now a published author, by the way, after she did this. And of course, Malala Yousafzai. So Malala came to visit us in October of 2013. It's the only meeting in the Oval that Malia Obama ever attended. And when Malala came, she was still only 17 years old, um, but had all the poise you know, to address the issues of global girls' education with the leader of the free world. And her visit inspired Mrs. Obama and me to launch something called Let Girls Learn which was our final initiative of Mrs. Obama's initiatives in the White House to support adolescent girls' education around the world, which we both feel so incredibly passionate about because there's 98 million girls around the world in the developing world who are not in school right now. And they're not in school because they're suffering from all the gender discrimination that women do. They're seen as more valuable as child brides or as labor. Um, and instead, what we know, if we educate girls, we're going to make not only their economic conditions better, but the entire GDP for countries lifts up. Um, safety and security for the world will improve if we can educate girls around the world. Um, this is a moment where sometimes these ideas get built, you know, built around your like my, my little office table in DC. And when we first launched Let Girls Learn, we went to Cambodia. We're sitting in a school um, in rural Cambodia with Mrs. Obama. And this young girl who's standing up is, you know, singing, she starts, she's about to start singing a song, all in commerce. I mean, we really don't understand it, except for the one words that we couldn't understand were let girls learn. And I had a moment where we just brought that, we came up with that idea around my table in DC. And now there's a girl in a rural village in Cambodia saying the world's words, let girls learn. We've continued that work with the Global Girls Alliance, which Mrs. Obama has now just launched from the Obama Foundation. And you can go to the Obama Foundation website to find out about that. We launched it on International Day the Girl last October. Continued work to pursue and support girls' education around the world and the girls' education activists in the developing world who are trying to make that happen. Um, and this is one of the girls at the Today Show launch. You know, we were out on the plaza there that the Today Show does. Um, and she just represents you know, what I see in the promise of young girls, which is we are the leaders that we've been waiting for. And we've, shortly after the launch, we had a summit from the Obama summit with these, you know, four women talking about global girls' education. But I want to focus on the young lady in the white sweater. Um, she was a young girl who traveled to this. She was 13 years old. She lives in India. Um, her parent, her brothers and her father did not want her to go to school. In fact, her brother burnt all her clothes and all her books so that she could not go to school. She finally got in touch with an amazing woman who runs a school for girls and pays for their education and allows them to live there at the school, who took her in and now she's in school there. She came with her to Chicago for the Obama summit. And what was remarkable about this year, she's 13. And what she said to me, she said, you know, I said, what do you want to do when you, with your education when you grow up? And she said, I want to become a police officer because there's too much violence against women that I see in my community. And then she said, and because I want to show my brother that I'm worth it and I can do this, which is sort of amazing. And then there's this moment. So indulge me a little bit because when I got this photo sent to me, I was sort of like also amazed. <laughs> so this was an International Women's Day event that was held several years ago um, in, I believe, Kenya. And um, they were doing this, I'm her, there's posters around, so, you know, Hillary Clinton's there, not surprising, Michelle Obama's not there, not surprising. And then behind Hillary Clinton, so I'm totally, totally amazed, <laughs> thank you. 
Thank you. But I will say that it was sort of amazing, and it remains amazing to me that here it was that, that, that young girls halfway around the world for me would know actually who I am. And what I'm doing is enormously, enormously honoring and, 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 and actually quite humbling. And finally, this is my last slide. I always like to sort of end on this particular picture. This is a young woman we met in Liberia when our, again, on our, one of our Let Girls Learn trips. And she, we're at a, a girls' education camp that she, was, she goes to. And it's just a light in her eyes that I try to sort of hold on to when things get hard, when things get tough, when you've been up for three days <laughs> and you're traveling around the world. You know, her light, because you know, she's coming, she goes to school you know, in a place that has no electricity and dirt floors. And yet she wants to become a doctor, she told me, because she wants to go back and serve her community. Um, that's what International Women's Day is about. That's what we celebrate. That's what we recommit ourselves to every year, which is the promise that these young women hold for how we can change the world and the responsibility that all of us have with whatever means that we can do to help support them and help them achieve that dream. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, thanks very much, Tina, for a, I think we can count that as a high energy conversation if someone's been up for three days. I think that's pretty impressive. Um, one of the things I thought listening to you is despite a very affirmative and positive, upbeat kind of presentation, in fact, a sort of a sub-theme through your presentation is that political change doesn't always come according to plan, right? Springfield, Illinois, 40 years time for ERA recognition. Um, but other moments too where political intention doesn't always respond to political effect. You know, we try and things don't come out exactly the right way. That can sometimes be experienced by individuals as very demoralizing. You know, I did all of this and it didn't happen. But I'd like to invite you to, to sort of talk to us this afternoon about what, how do we think politically in that knowledge that we're not always effective agents of change? What's the, what's the time of politics? Well, I think you have to take the long view. So I get a version of this question. You asked it the most polite way. <laughs> I get a more direct question sometimes, which is, and what do you think about what's going on right now? <laughs> Um, and, you know, and, and, the, and President Obama says this a lot, too. I mean, you know, he has, you know, he quotes the arc and moral, you know, the universe quote is long, but bends towards justice. And, you know, it is long. You have to take the long view on these issues. And change and big change and big societal culture change, deep societal culture change, which is what a lot of this requires, does not come easily. Um, we are fighting against cultural norms that are deeply embedded. Um, and so we have to, you know, sort of understand that that's long and recognize when we've made the bend. I mean, I often say, you know, let's be real about gender discrimination. Gender discrimination is one of those things that has transcended time, religion, geography, ethnicity, right? It is everywhere and it has been everywhere for millennia. So this is not something we're going to reverse in a year or two. But then on the other hand, you know, for me in the United States, you know, I often look back on the LGBT moment, right? You know, when we first came into office in 2009, it was unthinkable that we could get marriage equality, that we could reverse, you know, the Defense of Marriage Act, which was an anti-gay marriage act enshrined in our federal law, that we could reverse the ability to bar against gay people serving in our military. We did all of it, and no one is trying to take us back on those issues because we have now, I think, fundamentally changed the culture. Um, and that's, that's going to keep happening. 
Okay, so I guess one of the things I would draw from that answer is a sense that there might be different ways of measuring the efficacy of political change. And it's not always in the big ticket items of transforming something or passing a legislation, but maybe in the harder to measure soft changes of cultural opinion, which are kind of interesting to think about. Of course. You've got to work on both. But, you know, I also, I'm I'm really, because I'm doing so much workplace culture work now, um, I really do think that culture change is where we're really going to see differences made in how people are able to feel safer and in their workplaces, for example, and reach their full potential more than the legal changes. Well, workplace culture is exactly where I wanted to take you. In fact, I could probably go and sit down and you could ask your own questions. <laughs> but what I wanted to ask was, you know, we're obviously um, based in a, a university and universities are institutions of a certain kind. Um, you've already pegged me as a polite person, so I'll just say they are sometimes slow. They're large and they are sometimes <laughs> slow. So what would you advise or what would be your reflections around how to make effective institutional or workplace change? Ooh, there's been a lot. <laughs> and we only have, you know, how much time left. You know, I think, well, first of all, you have to, I think, articulate a set of values. And I think for any workplace, but I think for a place like a university in particular, you know, really examining what are your values, um, what are the values that you believe are core to the institution, and then really challenge yourself. And if you're on, you know, students looking for change, <laughs> excuse me, challenging the institution to live up to those values and drawing the line and seeing how, oh, you know, there'll be many workplaces that will say, you know, we value everybody's opinion. It's like, well, how do you really do that? And how do you really execute that? And how are you, when you don't promote women, when you don't give them an equal, equal pay, you know, really drawing those, those lines and challenging it. And if you haven't had a re-examination of your values in a while, and there are a lot of places that went through a values you know, exercise a long time ago. I think, you know, it's, it's like emblazoned on our crest, right? So I don't know if universities are these like this. I, got a, I went to Harvard. Harvard has a cool crest that's like, you know, got that emblazoned. It's kind of like, oh, we're not going to look at that because it's like been there for 400 years. Mm. Maybe we should take a look at it. <laughs> it's time to sort of re-examine those. And maybe that's a nice throw to you, Lisa, because in your role as DVC, Indigenous Strategies and Services, I'm guessing you've got to think a lot about one institutional values and then about embedding cultural change and how that happens. Yeah, I think one of the best things um, about where we're at now is that there is no reason not to continue progressing. Over the last 10, 15, 20 years, there's seen a massive shift in the number of women in the academy, whether they're professional staff members or academic staff members. And I know the Vice-Chancellor will be talking a little bit uh, in a moment about where we stand with regards to women on our senior leadership groups. Ultimately, culture is one of those things that is not driven by an institution. Everyone talks about institutional cultural change. We are the institution. You know, we, we are members of the institution. We are the ones that drive the institution. We are the ones that drive the politics. We are the organisation. And if we can't be strong in our own skin and in our own place, on this land and in this organisation and whatever gender we are, and we do know that there's not two, that it's a very, very diverse discussion if we're not brave and courageous and able to feel good about who we are, 
then we need to recognise that we need to learn and we need to drive and we need to grow and we need to take the next step. This institution, you might be interested to know, and I'd be um, keen to see who else knew this, the first seal of this university had two people on the seal. One was a woman who was putting a laurel upon the head of a young man. The earliest seal of this university was very strong with that image. And I understand that that original seal is still in existence. It hasn't, it hasn't stopped um, being used. And so when I saw that, I thought, well, that is really interesting because this has always been a very special culture. The second thing that was important on that seal is that it had the Southern Cross, which is a constellation specific to the Southern Hemisphere and to us, and a beautiful tree. It had a spear tree. And you'll soon be seeing a number of spear trees at the front entrance of this university very, very soon. So our earliest seal foretold a future that we're now seeing and realising. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So I hope some of the toggling back and forth between individual units and organisational units, um, single people forming networks and thinking about political change inside the context of our large organisations like universities, like governments, is making all of us feel like we would like to up the stakes of our own change agent effectiveness. So I'm going to close out this fireside chat um, by asking Lisa and then Tina for a, what's a single simple piece of advice um, for how to maximise our individual capacities to be effective at institutional change. Lisa. Grow yourself and use your voice. Excellent. Voice is really important and not easy. So I have to acknowledge that, you know, especially to a group of you know college age and graduate student students, it's not easy. You know, you're looking. I often say sometimes when I'm talking, I have to do this with my own children. You're looking at the 63 year old end product um, in front of you. You know, there was a time when. I went through a lot of, I don't know whether that's who I am. I don't know whether I have a voice to do this. There is the naysayer voice that all of us have. There, there's the negativity. And I think young people today have it much harder than I did because the naysayers aren't just in your head. They're on that social media thing, really rampant, right? And, and so that negativity that can sometimes take hold and blossom in your brain is really there even now I, I it happens to me too so it doesn't ever go away even as you age but what does go away if you work at it is to understand who you are to grow that confidence in who you are to do the homework that you need to do to be that confident in what you know and what you believe and how you articulate it and how you're going to speak out for it. And then you trust it, right? Which is, I think, you know, what Lisa's saying is that you then trust that voice and you tune out the negativity and the naysayers and keep using your voice and keep exercising your voice. And then I will tell you one more secret behind all doing all of that is that you'll find the best friends in your life in doing it. Right? We don't talk about that enough, but I will tell you, so whether it's women in Sydney it's true. That, that Lisa's now started, or it's the Obama campaign that is now my family, everybody that I've known for the last 10 years, um, my best friends in life have 
come from the work people I've worked side by side in change organizations and for political change because you share a sense of values and you go through such a struggle. Um, but they really just become your family for the rest of your life. Thank you both so much for those reflections. Tina, you have, I've Googled while you were speaking, you've come from minus 12 degrees Celsius to 29 degrees Celsius. Welcome. Can we, a round of applause for Lisa and Tina. I'm going to encourage you back to your seat. And I'm going to invite our Vice Chancellor, Michael Spence, to make some closing remarks. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much, um, Tina, for an incredibly inspiring lecture. And thank you very much all for joining us today. Um, International Women's Day always seems to me to be a day for celebration, but also a day, as it were, for firming resolve. And no more than this week, and I'll tell you why. But it's essentially the same response that I used to have as a teacher when I taught feminist jurisprudence at the University of Oxford. Um, lots of my students, particularly my female students, would say, well, what is all of this nonsense that we're reading? I don't feel like it, the future is anything but mine and I don't feel like I've been held back in any sort of way, in the way that I know lots of our female students feel now. And as a teacher, part of what you had to do is say, well, yeah, but, and that's terrific, but also how do you deal with these statistics and how do you deal with these stories and how do you deal with these realities of the experience of women, not only in foreign places, but also here at home? And of course, there were other women um, and men who would say, no, absolutely, everything is terrible. The world is, well, then women are constantly being oppressed in this, that, or the other way. And you'd also have to say, but yeah, 100 years ago, married women um, couldn't, have, um, uh, uh, couldn't own property. Um, up until the 1970s, here at the University of Sydney, if a woman married, she was forced by law to retire. Right? And so we have made extraordinary progress. And International Women's Day is a day both for taking stock and also for celebrating what's been achieved, not only by remarkable women like, um, like Tina and Lisa and Anna Marie, but by us as a community in bringing change. And so this week has been both encouraging for me and discouraging for me. We have this lecture from a global figure, and it's about issues to do with women, and the audience is mostly women. It's pretty discouraging. We had a town hall this week for um, 650 staff in the Great Hall, and then a um, a meeting of the academic board the next day. The only people who asked questions were men and men of a particular age. Not that I have anything against men of a particular <laughs> age. But that's pretty discouraging. And yet, we're in a university with a woman chancellor. We're in a university with more um, women than men just on our governing body, with more women than men just in our senior executive group, with more women than men in our academic um, board. And interestingly, after that town hall, I got floods of letters and, um, and texts and emails from women across the university who'd been there who said, those men do not speak for me. And so I think we're at a powerful and important moment in the culture where we are really beginning to see a shift here. But where that challenge to take personal agency, a challenge to me, but also a challenge to men and women at every um, level of the organization, 
is more important than it has ever been before. The backlash is real. Last week on campus, we had Bettina Antiev handing out leaflets and boasting on national television about the fact that she'd been handing out leaflets, trivialising the sexual assault of women. The backlash is real, but the hope for deep cultural change here in this place is profound. So I would like to thank you, Tina, for your inspiring words today. I'd like to thank everybody who came. And I would ask you to re-express your commitment to changing not only the community more generally, but this institution in the weeks and months and years ahead. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.